This morning, uh, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here. I think my official title is the pastor who preaches every time it snows, because uh, that's happened twice now. So if it's snowing, look for me. Uh, I see a lot of red out there. That's great. Uh, I have my Packers socks on, so I'm ready for today. Uh, it's going to be a good day. But first, we are going to enter a time of teaching where we open God's Word, unpack it, explain it, see what relevance it has for our lives today. Uh, before we do that, would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would... Uh, Enable us to understand your word. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit. And through it, would we see you, would we see your son, Jesus, for who you really are. God, we pray all these things in the name of your son and by his spirit. Amen. Well, last year, about this time, uh, my wife stumbled upon a book that she pretty quickly became infatuated with. And as typically happens with spouses, uh, that book started to change things about my life. Uh, the book was called The Life-Changing Habit of, or The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. And if you, some of you are familiar, I can tell. If you aren't familiar with Marie Kondo, uh, she's essentially a woman who just really, really enjoys torturing people. It's the best way I can put it. She just enjoys torturing people. She's a no-nonsense lady who's dead set on, on making sure that you just get rid of a bunch of your stuff. She has this method of cleaning and organizing your space that she says is going to change your life. Now, when Ashton first, first started talking to me about Marie Kondo and her method of ruining my happiness, uh, I was super resistant. Because I like stuff. Stuff makes me happy. I like my stuff. I don't want some person who doesn't know me telling me which stuff I should get rid of, uh, or how I should fold my clothes, or why I should keep all of my bags in another bag, uh, or how many books I should keep around. But as you can imagine, my objections only fueled Ashton further, and she just started condoing our house harder. Uh, we went through all of our clothes, our books, our papers, our cabinets, all the way up to sentimental items, and that's where we stopped because at that point my heart was in pieces. But through that process, a couple of things happened to me. First off, uh, I realized how much stuff I had that I never used. Like, like how much stuff I had accumulated that I just kept around, I never used it, it just took up space in my life. The other thing that, that happened to me is, is I also started to feel a little bit more free, actually. A little bit more free. See, I felt like my house was full of things at that point that actually mattered. I felt like I could see the things that were most important to me because the stuff that cluttered up the important things had been cleared out. And that's Marie Kondo's whole thing. She wants you to fill your house with things that, that spark joy, right? So the first thing you do when you do her method is clear out all the junk that is just clutter so that you can spend your time putting the important things in the right place. Last week, if you weren't with us, we, we started a series called Rediscovering Jesus. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, uh, one of the four biographies, historical biographies of, of Jesus' life that we have in, in the New Testament. And our goal in looking at Luke is, is to see Jesus for who he really was and is. But the first problem we run into when we seek to rediscover Jesus goes something like this. Over the course of our lives, each of us has accumulated baggage that clutters our perception of Jesus. 
This is true whether you currently follow Jesus or you never have followed Jesus or or you're someone who used to or grew up in the church and, and have drifted away over time. Wherever you are this morning, you probably come here with baked in ideas about who Jesus was and what he was about. And what that means is that whether you're a pastor or a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer or a parent or a child, we all have stuff that needs cleared out if we are going to receive Jesus for who he really is. We all have stuff that needs cleared out. But, but as we start this journey of rediscovering Jesus, you might have noticed that we're actually not really looking at Jesus at all. It's kind of ironic. Uh, you might have gotten all excited to study Jesus with Bill's sermon last week, only to hear the scripture read this morning, and all of the talk is about this guy named John. And see, that's intentional, both by Luke and by us. Here's why. Because before we can discover Jesus, we have to understand the heart of John's message. Before we discover Jesus, we have to understand the heart of his message. And his message was pretty simple. It went something like this. You aren't ready for God. You aren't ready for God. As we turn to our passage this morning, John is going to confront us with the first and most important thing that needs cleared out of our lives if we are going to be ready for God. So let's turn uh, to Luke chapter 3. If you have your Bibles open, uh, open with me to Luke chapter 3. God did give extra grace for Holly this morning, having to read all those names of rulers. Uh, But but even though they're hard to read through, remember what Bill talked about last week, if you were here, that Luke's entire goal is to establish a historical account. And so naming all of these names is just saying, hey, this guy John popped up at a very specific point in human history. It's a historical, reliable thing. So so at this time in history, John pops up, he hears a word from God in the wilderness, and he's ready to do what God has called him to do. Let's see what that is. Start with me in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So what John does is he starts going everywhere, and he is preaching a message, and he starts baptizing people. And Luke tells us that the prophet Isaiah actually looked forward to someone kind of like John, who was going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. That word prepare uh, in Isaiah is the Hebrew word panah, which means to turn literally or to clear out. See, the same problem faced Israel when Jesus came on the scene in Luke. Israel had waited and longed for a Messiah, an anointed one who was going to come and bring this new and better reality that they called the kingdom of God. But over time, what happened? They accumulated a set of expectations and habits and philosophies and other barriers that made it to where they weren't ready for the Messiah when he actually showed up. They had stuff that needed cleared out to get ready for this new and better thing that they wanted. So God sent someone ahead of Jesus, and the purpose of that person was to prepare the people for the Messiah. He chose a clearing out person, if you will, to to make the paths for Jesus clear, to point ahead to the ministry of Jesus, and to get people ready for what God was going to do. That was John's role, was to prepare the people for Jesus. Well, what does that look like to prepare for the Messiah? Let's keep reading in verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, 
And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The picture that we get here is that preparing uh, the way for the Messiah looks a lot like making a highway. Valleys are filled, mountains are, are made low, crooked paths are made straight, rough spots are made level. Think something like a red carpet when, when a queen like Queen Elizabeth or Queen Beyonce comes to town. Is that you roll out the red carpet, you clear the path, you make the way straight for them. And this is the Lord who's visiting. So here's the idea. There are crooked roads in our lives that make accessing God hard. Our relationship to God is kind of like the difference between a valley and a mountain. There's a a gap there. And that gap is, is what the biblical writers often refer to as sin. There's a gap between us and God. And so what's, what, what Luke is saying here is God is going to start smoothing out, smoothing out those rough spots. He's going to start straightening out those crooked ways and start leveling out the gap between the valley and the mountain so that we can have access to him through his Messiah. So John, his job is, is to announce this good news, to let people know that it's happening, and then to get the people ready and on the right track for this highway by clearing out the biggest obstacle, sin. And this, I think, is, is what he's getting at. The straightest way to Jesus is owning up to your crookedness. The straightest way to Jesus is owning up to your crookedness. In one word, John's message is this, repent. Verse 3 says he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now this word repent is kind of a religious and, and stuffy word, uh, but it's used in Luke a lot, actually more than all three other gospels combined. Uh, so it's important, and it's important to this message of crookedness in John. So what does it mean? To repent is first to say this, I can't get to God on my own. I can't get to God on my own. When John went around and started announcing that this thing was happening, he drew a crowd pretty quickly. People started coming to him, and they were excited, and they wanted to be baptized by him. But John's first response, uh, as we'll see here, is, is he actually starts rebuking them. He starts by rebuking them. And I, I don't know if any of you have taken a public speaking class, but public speaking 101 is that's not how you keep a crowd, uh, is by rebuking them. But that's what he does. Listen to what he says in verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. See, one of the things that cluttered the Jewish perception of the Messiah was the idea that they would see God's salvation simply by nature of being ethnically Jewish. And what John is saying is that the pathway to God is not based on being ethnically a child of Abraham. Yes, the Messiah is bringing judgment, but the way to avoid it is not based on ethnicity. Instead, it's based on recognizing that they can't get to God on their own. They don't have the means to do it. And they have to be willing to confront their own crookedness. Now maybe for us, it's not our ethnicity. But maybe we think, well, I was baptized as a child, or I grew up in a Christian family, or I'm basically a good person, or I believe in all the right causes. 
Surely that's enough. Surely I'm ready for God. He wouldn't call me a brood of vipers. But that's exactly what the people who went out to see John thought. So I think one way to figure out if we have this posture of repentance is to ask this. Can we hear words of rebuke? Can we hear words of rebuke? Because here's the thing, if we aren't willing to be confronted with our own crookedness, it's probably a sign that we think we can cut it on our own. Later on in verse 19, Luke records that, that, that John's message of repentance actually costs him. And it costs him because Herod can't hear words of rebuke. He can't hear them. See, John confronts Herod with his sin and tells him to repent, and instead, Herod throws John into prison. He locks him up. And I think Herod is an image of many of us who have a hard time stomaching God's message if it confronts our approach to life. We have a hard time stomaching his message if it confronts our approach to life. One of the baked-in assumptions that I think I have about Jesus that I've recognized recently is that he's just someone who supports any opinion or lifestyle that I already have. I don't know if any of the rest of you think that. But when, when I do this, when I believe this, I can actually oppose the preparation that God wants to do in my life. So, so ask yourself, reflect this morning, how do you respond when your sin is exposed? Do you resist it? Do you lock it up and ignore it? Do you cover it up? Do you hide it? Do you reject Jesus because of it? Are we people who are able to hear words of rebuke? So to repent first is to say, I can't get to God on my own. But, but more than that, to repent is then to identify the places where we have turned from God. To identify the places where we have turned from God. See, the crowds start to come up to John and ask, well, if being a child of Abraham doesn't prepare me, what do we need to do? Like, how do we, how do we see this kingdom? What does it look like to repent, to bear fruit? The first group of people that come up to John are tax collectors. And they ask him the question, what should we do? Look how he responds in verse 13. He says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. That's all he says. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. See, tax collectors were notorious uh, for taking money off the top of the taxes, for charging more than was necessary and keeping some of it for themselves. So what John does is he turns to them and he rebukes them for their greed. He says greed is the primary way that you are turning from God. Just after that, a group of soldiers comes up and asks John the exact same question. What should we do? Here's how he responds in verse 13. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So kind of similar, but, but John rebukes the soldiers here uh, for the way that they're abusing the power that they have. The abuse of power is the primary way that they are turning from God. But what I find interesting here is that John does not say stop being a tax collector. He doesn't say being a soldier is a sinful occupation. What he does do is he identifies the ways in their vocation where they're tempted to abandon the ways of God. Both the tax collector and the soldiers needed to hear that a right relationship with God required treating other humans well, not using them as an ends or as a means to an end. 
And you also might notice he doesn't give them something particularly religious to do. He doesn't say, go pray, go fast, go do all these things. He gives them economic things to do. He names specific works in each of their lives that are leading them to ruin instead of restoration. He's essentially like Marie Kondoing their life and saying, greed doesn't spark joy. Uh, Power, yep, doesn't spark joy. And we get this picture that to repent is to clear out these ruinous works of greed and power. It's not working for them. And friends, it doesn't work for us either. So we need to ask ourselves this. Can we see the works of ruin in our lives? Can we see the works of ruin? What I want us to do this morning is take a moment and I want us to view our Monday life through a lens of brokenness. Here's what I mean. When, When you look at your vocation or the way that you spend the majority of your time, what crooked trails have been carved out that naturally lead you away from God? What crooked trails have been carved out that naturally lead you away from God? For example, might John say to some of us, when we ask him, what should we do? Stop overcharging clients. Don't cheat on your homework. Be wise about how you and your children use technology and media. Practice what you preach. Don't discriminate against your customers. Provide your employees with generous compensation packages. Be an ethically conscious consumer. Don't cut corners. Stop gossiping about coworkers or classmates or neighbors. Keep from using inhumane practices to produce your goods and services. Use your home to care for strangers. Turn your phone off. There are so many things that he could say to us. The question is, can we, do we have the eyes to see the works of ruin in our own lives and the ways that we're being led astray? So we say, I can't get to God on my own. We identify the specific unique places in our lives and in our work where we are turning from God. But it's more than that still. To repent is ultimately to turn from the ways we're turning from God. To turn from the ways that we're turning from God. You'll see if you, if you read this whole passage that the fruit of repentance for the crowd, it's not extortion, it's not greed, it's not power abuse, but it is generosity. Look what he says in verse 11 when the crowd asks what they should do. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So John's message of repentance put together looks something like this. Recognize the areas that lead to ruin, turn away from those ways to God, and start living lives that are defined by the opposite. The opposite of greed is generosity. The opposite of power abuse, contentment. Looking at the specific things that God has revealed to you this morning, what are the opposites and how do you start living that way? Because there are really only two ways we can respond to God when we see our crookedness. We can either humbly confess and turn toward him, or like Herod, we can resist and oppose the way of Jesus. Now listen, it's hard to acknowledge our faults, believe me. It's very hard. It can be painful to confess. It takes vulnerability to do something like this. 
But it's not actually just a religious thing. Uh, Patrick Lencioni is, is a leadership expert who, who tells the story of a new Ford CEO who came in when the company wasn't doing well. And when he came in, he asked every department head how their department was doing. And even though the company wasn't doing well, every department head said, we're great. We're doing a really good job. There aren't any problems here. And so finally, one person stood up and said, we're actually not doing that great. And here's why. Confess their faults, confess their failures. And the CEO gave a standing ovation to the person who confessed his fault. And chances are Ford's a better company for it, right? Like if they kept ignoring their faults and failed to address them, their business might have plummeted. See, confessing failure is difficult, but John's warning is exactly the same for us. That there's a greater cost to not repenting. There's a greater cost to not repenting. See, what we fear when we confess is judgment, isn't it, ultimately? It's like people will judge me, I might get punished. But if you read the verses that follow towards the end of the chapter, that's actually the fate of the people who don't repent, or is judgment. So the question for us then is can we walk the way of repentance? Can we walk the way of repentance? Can we turn from the ways that we're turning from God and seek to live differently? One of my favorite quotes uh, of all time is from Anglican poet John Donne. Here's what he says. He says, Sleep with clean hands, either kept clean all day by integrity or washed clean at night by repentance. Sleep with clean hands, either kept clean all day by integrity or washed clean at night by repentance. Here's what he's saying. It's not a one-time thing. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's a daily act of working in integrity and at the end of the day, anywhere you've fallen short, confessing, naming our sin, owning our crookedness, and turning toward the path of God. You might notice, if you're looking ahead, that Luke makes a really strange turn after these hard words of repentance and judgment. He, he says in verse 18 that John continued to preach good news to the people. Good news to the people. It doesn't sound a lot like good news. How is this a message of good news? I think part of it is this, that it's good news because recognizing our need for repentance is what paves the way for us to see Jesus and respond to him the right way. It paves the way for us to see Jesus for who he is and respond appropriately. And even though you aren't ready for God, John's whole ministry is building up and pointing to this, that God is ready for you. God is ready for you. John's ministry, he describes it himself as ultimately pointing to a greater ministry that's coming from someone mightier than himself. His baptism builds up to a greater baptism that is coming with Jesus. And this baptism doesn't just call for repentance, but it gives the power, it unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to continue down the highway of God. Luke continues in verses 21 and 22, and Jesus himself is baptized. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
So here Jesus himself is baptized by John. And in that moment, God the Father speaks words directly over him about his identity. And the power of the Holy Spirit descends on him and he says, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. Here in front of all who are watching, God reveals the true core identity of Jesus. He's the son of God. He will be both a powerful king and a suffering servant. The paths are beginning to be made straight. The God of the mountain has descended into the valley, and a highway is being charted to access him. The ones who will find their identity as true children of God are the ones who are able to own their crookedness, identify the ways they're turning from God, and turn from these ways to seek him. Sounds so simple. But it's really so hard, isn't it? As we continue in the Gospel of Luke, we see that many people saw Jesus for who he really was. They saw him as the Son of God. But others, surrounded by the clutter of false expectations and pride and greed, rejected him and ultimately hung him on a tree because they weren't willing to let their mess be cleared out so that they could see him clearly. So the question for us remains, how is God proactively preparing you to see Jesus? This morning, right now, what does God want to clear out of your lives so that you can see him clearly? Are there cobwebs in the corner that need brushed out? Is there extra junk just lying around that gets in the way? Have you collected fun, distracting trinkets over time that are cluttering up your view of Jesus? What does God want to clear out of your life? In one sense, our mess can keep us from being ready for and discovering the real Jesus. That's what John is saying. But in another sense, the glorious reality of the God who is ready for you is this, that Jesus wants to meet you in your mess. He doesn't require us to get everything right in our lives before we come to him. The beauty of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the Jesus who stands ready to save you, stands ready to forgive you, and stands ready to call you his own. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that this simple but hard message would rest on us this week. Give us ears that are able to hear rebuke and don't close themselves off. Give us eyes to see our sin for what it is and to see the places that we're turning from you. Give us hearts that are sorrowful over our sin and desire to see you and know you more. And God, give us feet that are ready, that are eager to walk the road of repentance into abundant life. God, we do confess, I confess, there are so many ways that I've fallen short even this week. Would you forgive us? Would you help us to know the assurance of your pardon? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit. Amen.